From the horrors of slavery to the exploitation of sharecropping, many Black people in the U.S. have a history of trauma related to the land. But Black farmers like Leah Penniman of Soul Fire Farm are finding new ways to reclaim their spiritual connection with the earth. We are an Afro-Indigenous-centered community farm committed to uprooting racism and seeding sovereignty in the food system, which is a huge goal. Uh, we take care of 80 acres of land in upstate New York on traditional Mohican territory, and we use that land to revive our ancestral practices of growing food and medicine in ways that actually improve the land, the soil, the air, rather than harm it. And then, of course, we're activists and rabble-rousers, so most people by now understand that the food system is really stacked against farm workers and Black farmers and the earth herself. And so we're working to change policy and to build fair and just institutions, both locally but also, also nationally and internationally. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we're talking about how racism shapes our relationship to nature and how people like Leah Penniman are educating and creating community through farming. Later in the show, we hear from Dr. Dorsita Taylor, professor of environmental justice at the Yale School of the Environment. She talks about her decades of work in the environmental justice movement. But first, Leah Penniman. She's co-executive director and farm director at Soul Fire Farm. She's also author of Farming While Black and her most recent book, Black Earth Wisdom, Soulful Conversations with Black Environmentalists. Leah, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. One of the pieces of the many of Soul Fire Farm that I think is really important, especially in this moment, is the work that you do with young people around leadership, training and connection so that they see themselves as activists and leaders right now instead of believing that they have to wait. Why is it important for you to connect with young people, especially as you think about connecting to ancestral practice and reclaiming those traditions? Absolutely. So the population of farmers in this country is aging in in quite a terrifying fashion. At this rate, we won't have anyone to grow our food in one generation. And so it's crucial that we help youth feel welcome in the longstanding, beautiful agrarian tradition of their ancestors. There's a lot of trauma connected to land, uh, chattel slavery, sharecropping, a history of violent expulsion and government discrimination have, have left scars in our community as it relates to farming and land. And for a lot of folks, it's seen as undignified work. But the history that we're not taught is that so many of the, the beautiful ways that we take care of land, organic farming itself, you know, farm to table, co-ops, these come out of of Black agrarian practices. And so when young people not only learn that noble history, but also have a chance to connect with the land on their own terms and see people who look like them, who built a house and run a farm and, and contribute to the community, it expands their sense of what's possible. And almost without exception, you know, the thousands of young people who come to the land feel inspired, they feel grounded, they feel at home and very excited to explore future possibilities of taking leadership in their communities. Young people often have a command of language and connection in ways that people of my generation and older need to learn from. And I want to give a very particular example. You know, the, the phrase food insecurity is not new in the discussion of what's happening in the United States. 
And I think in some ways the COVID pandemic raised that up because people realized how often we take for granted what it means to depend on others to produce the food, the medicines that we consume, and what insecurity looks like broadly. But there are two terms that are so intrinsic to your work, food sovereignty and food Mm -hmm. justice that I want to lift up. What do those two terms not just mean, but how do they also shape the work that you do broadly with others in, as you said, sort of reclaiming tradition and doing it in an affirmative way? Yes, this is so important. So when we talk about food insecurity, we're talking about lack of access to food, particularly just enough calories to get by. And that's so important. I mean, we saw with the disruptions of pandemic, many people who've never experienced food insecurity got a little taste of the fear that it is when you just don't know where your next meal is coming from. And those grocery store shelves are not supplying, you know, what you need to nourish your family. And that's real. But that's not enough. You know, just having food on the shelves or food in the pantries does not mean that we have dignity control or health. We need to talk about culturally appropriate foods, um, dignified access to those foods, as well as leadership in uh, the seed, the the land, the, the growing of the food, the processing and production down to, you know, the consumer itself. Like, where is the democracy? Where is the leadership? So when we, we expand to food justice or even to food sovereignty, we are then talking about democratizing the food system. And all credit goes to indigenous communities worldwide who are part of a collective called Via Campesina that came up with this term of food sovereignty to really underscore how important it is that every person, um, every person, and even the earth herself has a say in how it is that we produce food and what that food is looks like when it gets to us. And so this shapes our work because it's not just about growing food and distributing it. We're teaching people to garden, teaching people to farm, uh, supporting access to land and capital and non-extractive credit, uh, supporting avenues for political advocacy so folks can get fair laws. And, And all of that we see as very integral to food sovereignty. Food sovereignty is so key for affirming that dignity, that power, and that sense of worth that people should not just have choices, but have quality choices and choices Mm -hmm. that reflect their tradition and also their deep humanity. And you capture much of that in your new book, Black Earth Wisdom. Let's talk about the book. Talk to us about the inspiration behind crafting this book. It's not your first book, but the approach and the structure is quite different than your earlier book. Talk to us about this new book. I would love to. So this second book, Black Earth Wisdom, was actually inspired by some of the research for my first book, Farming While Black, in 2018. So just as a side note, Farming While Black is very practical, right? It's this guide to farming. It's got a lot of history of of Black farming in it, and it's a guide. It's got staying power on the shelf. Um, In some ways, it is the how. Black Earth wisdom is the why. And what inspired me to write it was this little anecdote that came up about Dr. George Washington Carver when I was researching for Farming While Black. So he's our patron saint of agriculture. He's the founder of the modern organic movement, a Black farmer in the late 1800s out of Tuskegee University, who had people cover cropping and composting and doing crop rotation generations before the Rodale Institute popularized it in the European descendant community. Uh, lots to say about Dr. Carver. He was considered one of the 10 greatest minds of all time by Albert Einstein. He had thousands of inventions. He refused to patent them because he believed in the commons. I mean, this is a really cool dude, right? But when he was asked, where did he get his ideas? He told his friend, Glenn Clark, I go out into the forest in the pre-dawn 
hour and I talked to God through the forest, through the trees. He said, nature is God's unlimited broadcasting system through which he speaks to me every minute, every hour, every day, if I just tune into the right channel. So this is a a scientist who's also deeply spiritual and who has a sense of, of the earth as being infused with divine voice. And that was fascinating to me because I'm also trained as a scientist. I'm also deeply spiritual and religious and have a relationship with nature that is direct, that is about this divine connection. And I just thought I was hanging out here all by myself, being a weirdo, and I didn't tell too many people about it. Um, but it got me curious, you know, who else in the Black community is feeling and thinking this way, believing this way? So I called up my elder, uh, Dr. Claudia Ford, um, who's an ethnobotanist. I said, do you talk to plants? She said, yeah, I talk to plants. I said, tell me about that, you know, and tell me who else does. So she dropped some names. I talked to them. They dropped some names. And pretty soon, you know, there was scores, if not hundreds of Black environmental leaders interviews I had uh, who all have this, this connection to nature that transcends the material. And it felt very important um, as where the clock is sort of running out, right, in terms of humanity getting our stuff together so that we can thrive on this planet. You know, it, it, the biosphere is only 12 miles thick from the deepest ocean trenches up to the tops of the mountains. It's, it's not a lot, uh, this tiny life raft that we share with all beings and time is running out. And I, I really do believe it's a fundamental worldview shift that we need, uh, not just a sim- simple reconfiguring the calculus of carbon credits or quantifying ecosystem services in a capitalist frame. It, it's a it's a mind shift set to reweave ourselves into kinship with all beings if we are going to thrive alongside all beings. And so this book is a, a weaving together of the voices, um, essays, poetry, interviews uh, in conversation with these notable Black environmental environmentalist folks like Alice Walker, Adrian Marie Brown, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, Rue Mapp, Morgan Dixon, just like, you know. Heavy hitters. Dope folks. Yeah, yeah, they're amazing. I was crying a lot while I listened to them uh, in the interviews. It's, you know, I, I know the listeners can hear it. And because we're recording this, I can see it. There's a joy that spreads across your face, Leah, as you talk about this weaving together and this connection. But this book isn't just a weaving together of interviews and poetry. It is also in many ways a call to action. And you end each chapter with these questions like, what do you hear the earth saying to humans at the time? That reflection with the people with whom you are in conversation, then I think challenges the reader to think about what are we hearing? Can we create space in our lives to be silent and to be still, to listen, and then to connect and respond? How did having those conversations, posing those questions, maybe change or shape the way that you listen and that you are still in terms of that connection you have to the earth? Oh, so profoundly, you know, um, and I think that we're only just starting to remember how to hear So there's a lot more messages coming. You know, I was really struck by Elder Audrey Peterman. She's a Jamaican-American. Talk about radiant. I mean, it's like the light of truth is shining out of every orifice of this woman. She's just so radiant. Uh, But she's one of the first Black people to go to almost all the national parks, a big national park advocate in this country. And she was talking about how there was a time when everybody could read the sky, night and day, right? Everyone could look to the sky and they could tell the time of year, the weather it was going to be tomorrow. They could see the stories of their ancestors and the patterns. 
in a similar way, Lenny Sorensen was saying there was a time when every farmer knew you plant corn when the oak leaves are the size of a squirrel's ears. That's when the soil is warm. And so many of these uh, leaders mention languages of the earth that they read. The ice course, right? The bird song. Dr. Drew Lanham um, is a, a bird scientist and ornithologist. And he was saying, you know, there's three billion fewer birds singing now than there was in my grandmother's time. So the earth is speaking to us in all these languages, but as fewer people know how to read them, it's almost like we're in this game of telephone. Like you play as a child where you whisper a message and then that gets distorted, you whisper it to the next person. But it's not a game. It's actually uh, dangerous because society is basing its next steps and directionality on, on this scrambled message that isn't directly from the earth. And so what that awakens in me was this rehydration of a commitment to read the earth as if she were a sacred text with the reverence that, you know, I grew up as a double PK. I'm a preacher's kid, right? So when you read the Bible or the Torah, or the Quran or the Oduifa, you're reading for layers. There's the literal meaning, there's the subtle meaning, there's the esoteric meaning, right? The metaphorical meaning. And you really, you really study. And I have, I have rehydrated that commitment to not only know the names of the amphibians and the trees around me, but to be with them and to listen to the subtler messages because the earth is, you know, exactly as Dr. Carver said, constantly broadcasting messages to us, trying to get us to listen and come home and giving us survival tips. And we out here just all, all noise and all static, right? And, and it has made me practice now daily, just sitting, uh, you know, in nature, being quiet, being still and tuning in. When we return, more from Leah Penniman. She'll talk about the connection between the national park system and racism, including the role of eugenicist Madison Grant in founding some of the country's most prominent parks. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. In 1960, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife Coretta Scott King planned to vacation at a national park in Canada. Their friend Harold DeWolf was a professor at Boston University, and he wrote a letter to the park innkeeper making sure that they would be able to get in. The innkeeper discouraged their trip, saying of their guests, quote, A great many are from the New England states, as well as those from farther south. For this reason, we feel it would be better not to accommodate your friends. In the U.S., those same exclusionary practices proliferated across the park system. 
Access to parks for black people was historically restricted by Jim Crow laws. And to this day, black and brown people are underrepresented amongst national park visitors. A 2018 report from the conservation nonprofit, the George Wright Society, looked at national park data. They found that less than 2% of visitors were African-Americans. This hour, we're talking about the history of racism in the environmental movement. Later, we hear from Dr. Dorsita Taylor, professor of environmental justice at the Yale School of the Environment. But first, more from Leah Penniman, co-executive director and farm director at Soul Fire Farm. She's author of Black Earth Wisdom, Soulful Conversations with Black Environmentalists. I told Leah about my own experience growing up in Virginia. My families on both sides had farms, so I learned at an early age what to listen for in nature. Now when I go back home, I can tell that the sounds are different. I no longer hear the same cacophony of birds or cicadas and other sounds that signal when the seasons are changing. As Leah about her own childhood connection to nature and the experiences that resonate with her to this day. We grew up in this rural town in central Massachusetts as the only family of color. So the racialized bullying was uh, horrific, to say the least. So my siblings and I found solace in the forest. You know, we would harvest blueberries from the island in the middle of Lake Watadig. Um, We would harvest wood sorrel and make ourselves salads. We spent long periods of time wandering through sun-dappled mossy patches in the forest and eventually decided that we needed to create our own religion, which we called Mother Nature. And so we had a temple made from this old abandoned shack and we decorated with birch bark and blue jay feathers and made up songs, hymns of praise to the earth and to animals and plants. And, um, you know, when we got a little older and by older, I mean like seven, we started an activist club called the Junior Ecologist Kids Club that went on pollution patrols and picked up trash. It was just us, you know, it was just us, three kids in the, in the club. There was this sense from a, a young age that the earth, the land around us was our best friend. And to learn that there was an assault on the planet was quite personal. I remember my younger sibling, Naima, literally putting her tiny six-year-old body between some loggers and the forest they were going to cut down. As a child, no adults around, egging her on. She was like, this is my friend. You, No, you're not doing this. And there's a, a moral clarity of youth that it's easy to, in some ways to uh, make light of or ridicule the younger self. You know, oh, how quaint or simplistic or um, unnuanced our, our perspective was. And, and that's true to some extent. But the moral clarity of youth of just like, it's never okay to destroy like, you know, and, and we see that with the sunrise movement and the climate. It is not okay to warm this planet. Don't stop making excuses. Like we just stop. We need to do this right now. There's a way as I got older and more practical and understood complexity that I let myself live in that gray area a little too much. And in listening to these wise Black Earth wisdom contributors, it has given me some permission to sink back into the moral clarity of youth. Let's talk about the complexity because you say in the book that for some Black people, some Indigenous folks, having a relationship with nature can be difficult and tenuous because what that space has represented historically, the ways in which 
land has been captured and co-opted to assert power and to remove people, to deny ancestral connection and lineage. And so in those ways, one can have respect for the earth, respect for nature, but that direct relationship that you mentioned is often blocked and overshadowed by the many ways in which structural racism, uh, a history of white supremacy that becomes embedded into those structures, then becomes a blockage to that connection. But you also talk about how the earth was never the criminal. It was those mm-hmm. who misused it. How do you ha- work through that tension and that history to help people reclaim that connection or see that connection that this is their birthright to have in spite of how others have tried to manipulate it. Oh my goodness. It's so complex, right? I mean, something that's really important to root in are the historical and current facts that black and brown folks love nature, are connected to nature, and the the barriers that get in the way are not intrinsic or internal in any way. You know, and there's been many surveys Uh, that show this, you know, for example, um, there are a higher percentage of black and brown folks who show concern about the climate and biodiversity than the population at large, like today, right? Um, There are 70% of black folks participate in the type of recreational activities offered in the national parks, even though less than 2% of national park visitors are black, right? And so that juxtaposition right there shows you there's some barrier, like we do like bird watching and, and hiking, and picnicking, right? But somehow we can't get to those national parks. And then we have to look at the socio-historical factors. Oh, wait, the national parks were a genocidal project of stealing land from indigenous people. Jim Crow laws kept us out, right? And in fact, the creation of the parks was explicitly a eugenicist project, according to Madison Grant, who is instrumental in creating Everglades, Olympic, Glacier, and Denali to strengthen the Nordic race. And he wrote about this in his book, The Passing of a Great Race, which was Adolf Hitler's Bible, according to Hitler, right? And so embedded, and this is in the farming community, you see this with the Klan driving folks off their land. So there's so much trauma, but um, as you alluded to, you know, we, we say the land was the scene of the crime, but never the criminal. The black people never broke up with the land <laughs> um, despite, and actually kept yearning for the land, despite the, the many barriers and expulsion. Um, I was so moved that uh, when I read this quote is from 1865, when, you know, the end of, of the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation is happening, it's, it's the beginning of re- Reconstruction, and the freed people of Falls Church, Virginia, wrote a letter to the government that said, what we need are homes and the land beneath them so that we can plant fruit trees concerning which we can say to our children, these are ours, right? So this this yearning for land and trees, Harriet Tubman's first thing she did when she settled in New York was to plant an orchard because she had always wanted to plant some trees and watch them grow and say to her people, these are ours. And we we never broke up with the land, but I think it's very important that we learn this history. And it's also very pertinent that we start to dismantle the barriers. You know, um, studies show that there was a study of 900,000 people that showed that if you don't have green space, you have a 55% higher risk of developing a psychiatric disorder. And yet three quarters of black children grow up without green space, right? So that's a societal problem. That's not a black people problem. It's like green space is a human right. Community gardens and parks and transportation to big nature is a basic human right. It actually helps us to grow and learn and be okay. Um, And so we need to just figure that out. And 
I have not met one child who comes out to this farm and isn't delighted to connect with nature. So it's not inside of us. It's about the access and the safety and the inclusion. I'm listening to you and thinking that access to those spaces, access to nature, or, you know, as we were always told growing up, access to putting your fingers, your hands and your toes into the dirt is this right. But it's also about public health and about a commitment to community wellness, community safety and community wholeness. It is clear, Leah, in everything that I hear from you, everything I've read, all of your work, that you are an educator at heart and that you see yourself in that role in many spaces. And, you know, it makes sense that you spent 17 years teaching in high school as well. What is it about that commitment to education, that sort of lifelong commitment to learning that we see in you? What is it about that connection and that possibility that gives you hope? that we will get this right in order to reclaim that connection to the earth. What gives you hope amid all of this? Oh my goodness. I mean, teaching, you know, the spirit of each one, teach one is deeply embedded in black culture. You know, I think of the first ag extension agency in the United States came out of Tuskegee university. Cause they were like, Oh, not everyone comes to the university. We're going to hook a, a cart to a mule and take the the good news to the people. And they went around fixing up people's farms and turning the most dilapidated farms into demonstration farms uh, for the entire county. And so we have always been deeply, if I learn something, it's yours. Um, and we give away our knowledge freely. I mean, that, that sort of mycelial spreading or pollination sort of spreading um, certainly gives me hope, but I'll, I'll speak to it even, even more deeply, you know, because I don't want to be Pollyanna in the face of, of real evidence that, society is going off the tracks, you know, and, and the thing that does sustain me in the face of that is, is my practical brain. And so bear with me for a minute. But if you if you were to imagine adopting despair instead of hope as a frame, what society would look like right now is a bunch of people chasing hedonism and self interest, and causing a lot of harm to each other today, right? Because I hold on to hope as praxis. I just came in from the field where I'm like, planting things to feed my community and taking care of soil because I believe that this matters. I believe that the topsoil that we add is, is to the, to the earth is going to be of some benefit and I'm causing positivity, you know, in my community right now. And I might not get to the mountaintop or to the promised land, but by each making each better, each day better, that collective accumulated benefit has the potential to hopefully bring us to the promised land. Um, so I think I think hope is a pragmatic scientific choice that we should all adopt. I love that. Hope is praxis. What then do you say to listeners who will hear this conversation, who will be intrigued by the many different ideas, even the, the very concept and realization that science and spirit can coexist and do exist in these powerful ways, what are sort of takeaways or action items that you would say to people to start where they are to actually contribute to this better path and praxis? Well, I'll suggest three action items. I think first, it is really important for each of us to cultivate our own listening to the earth. So whether that's getting to know the names of your non-human neighbors by that, I mean, the trees and the birds, getting to know their names, say good morning to them, sitting quietly in the forest, um, learning to study the sounds of the, the the landscape and the changes, looking at the moon each night and watching the change, right? That actual personal practice is important, but it's also important to take societal action. And so that means supporting 
Black and Indigenous-led ecological projects. You know, orgs like Girl Trek and Outdoor Afro and National Black Food and Justice Alliance, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, you know, and on and on. And you can go to our website, soulfirefarms.org, for a nice, juicy list of, of organi- organizations you can support. And then I think also to keep learning, you know, like every single person who contributed to Black Earth Wisdom has got more juicy stuff that folks have their own publications and then and then their friends have publications. And so starting to um, educate ourselves and shift our mind frame so that we're making decisions that are much more rooted in seven generational thinking than this sort of capitalist quarterly thinking is going to be key. We'll put a link to Soul Fire Farm and to the resources that you mentioned on our website so that our listeners can continue the learning, the connection, and the doing. Leah Penniman is a farmer, food justice activist, and author of Black Earth Wisdom, Soulful Conversations with Black Environmentalists. Leah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been an honor. Coming up. Professor Dorsita Taylor talks about the neighborhoods most affected by highway construction and pollution. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season three of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season three of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're exploring the relationship between race and the environment. Our next guest is Dr. Dorsita Taylor. Taylor is professor at the Yale School of the Environment and senior associate dean of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the school. She was interviewed for Leah Penniman's book, Black Earth Wisdom, and she's author of multiple books, including The Rise of the American Conservation Movement, Power, Privilege, and Environmental Protection. Dr. Taylor, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. You have quite an accomplished career. You have been a champion and a leader in so many areas. But I want us to start today at the very basics. When you use the term environmental justice, what does that term mean? And more importantly, what does it represent? Uh, It's a very important term because for a lot of people, if you say the word conservation or if you just say environment, uh, some people see it as a white space, a white realm of activism. Others see it as spaces that they don't belong in or they're excluded from. So in the late 80s, early 90s, I was still a student. I was actually a student at Yale at the time. Uh, there were a number of uh, Black professors uh, and students like myself. So people like Robert Bullard, Beverly Wright, uh, young up-and-coming students. We really started to look at the idea of race equity, justice, inequality, urban issues, issues that affected primarily people of color or poor people, not really being a core or central part 
off the identity of what we considered an environmentalist. Even when I was a student at Yale, other Black students used to tease me and say, what are you doing up the hill in that school of environment? Because they weren't necessarily themselves seeing the connection with what was going on in their communities and environment. So, um, and for many of us, certainly for myself, I simply don't see an environment without connecting with race, racialization, uh, discrimination, lack of equity, lack of justice. All of those things are interconnected. Environmental justice uh, says that front and center, and it's a core part of what is done. If you look at just the term environment or conservation, it often does not see the equity and the justice dimensions to it. So very important terminology and a terminology that's going to stay in the discourse because of the fact that uh, we see the intersectionality, some people don't. You have said that you cannot think about environmental issues without also thinking about the relationship with race. Give our listeners some of those examples of how that appears or or how it has an impact on people's everyday lived experience. We can look at a place called Cancer Alley, the 90-mile stretch of, uh, of the Mississippi River that runs through Louisiana, from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. These are very small communities along that river, but one-fourth of all chemical manufacturing in the U.S. happens in this one tiny stretch of the country. Uh, Heavily poor, rural Black communities. And when you go along um, uh, Cancer Alley, what you see are just uh, smokestacks, plumes of pollution that's landing on uh, the people in these neighborhoods. That's not coincidental. If we go to places where uh, the population is more middle class, predominantly white, there is no way you see that much uh, disposal of toxics on the land, or you see these heavy flaring of the oil refineries that are going on in these communities. Not only that, if you happen to live in one of these communities, your egress in terms of, are you able to get out of your community if there's an explosion? And there are explosion in these chemical factories. If it explodes, you have one way in and out. And I remember visiting this area and praying. I'm not somebody who prays a lot, but I was praying for the day I was there. Please do not let anything happen. Uh, that we have any explosions because you literally can escape this along River Road, which runs north-south along the banks of the Mississippi. But it's also a river where the Mississippi River is actually higher than your roadway. So any breach in those levees means you can be flooded. And we saw it in Katrina where the river breached the banks. And so you're flooded. You're locked into these communities. You can't get out if there's a fire from one of the chemical plants, if there's a chemical leak and there's poisoning, or if the river decides that it's going to overflow. And so those kinds of setup, you typically don't see in middle-class white communities. You typically don't see things like Detroit, 
where when they were building the freeway that goes from Detroit up to the state capitol, they ran it straight through the middle of one of the most prosperous Black communities of the time. If you go to New Orleans, you see the highway that goes through the Treme part of the city running through what used to be a prosperous Black community. You see it in the Bronx. You see it in Chicago, where when white racists in Chicago wanted to segregate the south side of the city from the north side of the city. Again, one of the busiest freeways in the world uh, runs right through the center of what used to be uh, prosperous African-American communities of homeowners, now separated by a 14-lane freeway. And so those are things, not just the chemical factories, not just the large landfills, but the physical disruption of communities by highways and other dividing uh, mechanisms that makes environmental justice so important because those issues, they are not the only issues that environmental justice activists think about. We want parks. We want playgrounds for our children. We want to go to the beaches and not be shot and killed. But we also are looking at that systematic destruction of uh, especially Black communities, Native communities with uranium um, mining and uranium deposits on them. All of that was happening when activists in communities of colors were really not paying attention themselves to that connection between environment and health and well-being. And white environmentalists were quite happy to ignore those connections. You have just mentioned so many ways that this plays out for people across this entire country. And I point that out because for a long time, people thought that these were issues only in the South. When you thought about the devastation happening in places like North Carolina, you know, I grew up in Virginia in a neighborhood that at the time my grandparents were building their home was the only place where black families were allowed to build a home or have a home. And it meant that it was a neighborhood that was built on a former landfill. And the decades of those kinds of political decisions, economic decisions, having an impact for generations to come. And then, as you say, activists saying, wait a minute, this is having an impact. We don't have to stand for this, but still being shut out in some ways. You have also talked in your work about some of the people that we think of as being quote unquote leaders in the environmental movement actually helped solidify this racism and this racist history. People like Theodore Roosevelt, uh, John James Audubon, the founders of the Sierra Club, all of these people that we put forth. How does that history, their legacies, the ways that we only review them in a limited sense, how does that impact the activism that's happening today? Yeah, great question. It impacts it in a way that many environmentalists, and again, regardless of color, don't really understand the embeddedness of racism from the time we're looking at the emergent environmental movement in the early 1800s 
that racism was a piece of that and it was embedded. And even I myself, having spent most of my life taking environmental courses, it really wasn't until I um, finished graduate school and just started to look more deeply into the history. And it does take a lot of time to go and find and connect the dots in the history that you really start to see some of this racism. You start to see the Audubon uh, as a slave-holding piece. You see John Muir, and if you only read some of his works, he looks uh, wonderful, and he does have very important environmental ideas. But at the same time, he holds very racist ideas. And for myself, it was stepping into that brave space. <laughs> you were like this. Um, so quite a while ago, back, I went to a John Muir conference. I was literally in a conference of about 500 people, the only non-white person in the room. And I had just started going through reading his diaries. So you can't find a lot of the information I put in the book, The Rise of the Conservation Movement. It, it isn't just online. You have to really go to the original written sources. And for all the younger students and younger activists and people in your audience, I really urge you to not just go for the quick fix ideas, but take the time to ask the question that no one has asked. Uh, be patient, go in and do the groundwork. At this uh, John Muir conference, I got up in the room and I made sure I sat close to the door because I knew these people probably would have chased me out of the room. And I got up and said, you know, about the kind of racist ideas in John Muir's um, writing and his great grandchildren were there. And that room, I mean, literally, if they could have thrown me out, they would have thrown me out. But the reaction in that room was, how dare you um, kind of impugn his name and speak badly of him? And uh, But that did not stop me. I knew exactly what I was doing when I went in that room. I knew exactly what I was doing when I was writing The Rise of the Conservation Movement, because I wrote it and I thought to myself, wait for it, wait for it, wait until people read it, because then it won't be just me talking about this. There are other people who this will really impact. And it did. And if we could ever say there was an impact from the George Floyd piece on environmentalism, uh, you know, he gave his life in this horrific way or his life was taken. But out of it came this awakening in America of white people starting to say, who am I? Am I those policemen or am I going to be the person that's not blind? And so as that was going on, many environmentalists started to look at racial issues because they were in they were in denial that there was a race piece to how these um, these actions occur in cities. And so they began to read books like mine and to see that their blindness around their own leaders, who they revere, they don't talk about someone like Harriet Tubman. And this is also a note for Black people. We need to not sit around and wait for white folk to legitimize us and to write our histories for us and to document for our children and grandchildren how we fit in. Because a part of what we see is an erasure 
of contribution. So if we go back to someone like Harriet Tubman, I was reading her story as a bedtime story to my two-year-old twins one night when I just stopped in mid, mid-sentence and thought, oh, dear God, she had to have been an amazing environmentalist to be able to pull off going back and forth into the South, no GPS, grant you, no maps, no charts. She's illiterate, but she could make this journey 33 times into slavery, free over 300 Black people, and she had the highest bounty on her head ever in the American slave system, and she pulled it off. How does she do this with a huge amount of environmental knowledge? So if as Black people we don't understand the power that we have in educating ourselves and in being able to free ourselves we're missing something. I also write about someone, uh, Phyllis Wheatley, who's a slave girl who comes, who was brought to the US to Boston. There she was taught to read and write, but she was also, um, by the 1700s, the leading poet in America. But because she was black and a slave, um, she was more well-known in Europe because her masters took her and paraded her around Europe. Um, and, but when you look at her work, she really should be celebrated as the person who starts us on this conservation environmental journey by looking at the environment in this more beautiful way, not as an enemy, not as something to be conquered, but as something to be understood. And when you look at the writings of or of the heroes, the John Muir, the Henry David Thoreau, the Ralph Waldo Emerson, they were familiar, especially Emerson and Thoreau, with Phyllis Wheatley's work, and they borrow from her concepts. They get the credit, not the young black slave woman who dies in poverty um, once she was freed. So if other Black scholars, young students start to get their family histories, as you were saying. Where were you raised? I bet you in your community, asthma was common. And everybody just thought, oh, those, you know, it's just that person with asthma. I bet you lung diseases might have been common. I bet you people died of cancers, but we weren't connecting the dots. That if your community sits on an old landfill, There are these health issues that are going to run from generation to generation. You're going to funeral after funeral, but you're not stopping to say, why? Does everybody else go to a funeral as frequently as we do in our community? And it's sometimes as simple as asking that question. And then if you say, well, no, that's not common, then you start to dig into what's killing the people that I'm going to their funeral How old are they when they're dying? And there's something going on in my community that is not just a function of being Black or something else. And so that's a space that I see myself occupying in. I'm grateful for my ability to kind of see through some of these problems. I'm also grateful for my fearlessness in when I see them not being deterred by saying, well, why are you the only one, Dorsita, who sees this? Are you going down the wrong pathway? But really following those pathways until we can connect the dots and then share my 
information with other people who can then take on that mantle and and a large group of us fight it rather than just one person. One of the frustrations during the early stages of the pandemic were all the ways that people were condemning uh, communities of color, people who lived in urban areas who were more susceptible to negative outcomes related to COVID without ever understanding that if people are living in communities where they don't have the luxury of social distancing, they're living in communities in places like New Haven with excessively high rates of asthma, without the kind of cover of shade, all of these things that have an impact on health, wellness, and what you have just done is woven together this story of history, of literature and poetry, but also a recognition that, you know, sometimes you have to call a thing a thing in order to move through. As we come to the close of our conversation, what is one thing that you would say to our listeners in thinking about environmental justice and thinking about the mandate for all of us to take action? What is one thing you would say to the listeners? What I would ask people to do is really be vigilant about what's going on in your community, regardless of your race, your class, your color. Uh, work with other people in your communities to to lift up and insist that elected officials are held accountable. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed under the Biden administration is going to result in huge numbers of dollars, millions upon millions of dollars flooding into communities, low-income communities. Get active, get engaged in seeing that you are getting the tree cover that you need, the tree canopy to keep your neighborhoods cool. You're getting the rain gardens, the areas that, re uh, the things that help to prevent flooding, you're getting jobs so that your community people have jobs, well-paying jobs, jobs in the environmental sector, because uh, one of the reasons why we've had this long history of environmentalists being able to ignore communities of color and low-income communities is the very low percentage of people of color who are hired into these organizations. So call a spade a spade, start applying for these jobs and making sure that these dollars that are rolling in through the IRA not only are benefiting communities, you're at the planning meetings, you're at the meetings where decisions are being made. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu and, uh, and be sure that you're hired and the jobs are coming into your community so that you can lift up the youth to get them engaged in all of this. We will also include on our website a link to your recent report on mm -hmm. grant making. And we'll have to have you back to talk about grant making in the environmental space and the ways that it privileges the yes. very challenges that you mentioned. Dr. Dorsita E. Taylor is Senior Associate Dean of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion and Professor of Environmental Justice at the Yale School of the Environment. She's author of The Rise of the American Conservation Movement, Power, Privilege, and environmental protection. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. To listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>